0: 1 John chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. We finished up chapter 4 last week and tonight, Lord willing, we're going to go verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5. Now the first part of this passage, John, 1 John 5, 1 through 5, it's the most comprehensive summary of the teaching of John that the letter offers. Uh, John teaches us that true Christians will display evidence of being God's children. This is what he's been teaching us all along. And that includes right beliefs about God and includes holy living before God. And then the second part of the passage tonight, verses 6 through 12, also returns to a key theme of the letter. But then it just sort of expands on that in a really emphatic manner. And that is that God's testimony about his son is absolutely critical. So we're going to be talking about that tonight. You know, it's very often the case that children follow in their parents' footsteps. We often hear statements like, like father, like son. Anybody here ever been told you were like one of your parents? You know, or maybe it might be, somebody might say, well, she's just like her mother, that sort of thing. But, but in addition to that, not just in acting, in, in addition to that, it's also the case that children often, I would say, usually bear a, a pretty strikingly resemblance to either their mom or their dad, or sometimes you can really see a mix, mixture of both. And so someone might say, boy, he's just the spitting image of his dad. Or somebody might say, boy, she just really has her mom's eyes or nose or chin or whatever it might be. Well, in the letter of first John, the, the last living apostle has repeatedly drawn attention to three overarching birthmarks of the children of God. And they are right belief, right love, and right behavior. And now in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, he's going to draw out necessary implications of these three birthmarks, and then he's going to highlight six specific identifying evidences that a person is a child of God. Which, by the way, this chapter really, this section really begins sort of the conclusion of the, the theological portion of the letter. There's still more after that. But, uh, but John wants true believers to be assured that they are children of God. And, and he is also fully aware of the fact that there are spiritual, spiritual, deceivers in their midst who could raise questions and cast doubts. And we know we've talked about the false teachers, uh, you know, those that, that uh, had beliefs based on Gnosticism where they had some special knowledge. And they said, if you don't have this knowledge, you're not really saved. And so John is, that's part of what John is combating. He wants them to have assurance in their salvation He wants them to have a rock solid assurance that they have been born again, that they do belong to Jesus and that they they can even now enjoy right now the gift of eternal life. So let's look at these birthmarks of the children of God is what we're calling them tonight. And uh, the first one is if a true child of God believes that Jesus is the Messiah, this is what we see in verse one. Just the very first part of it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So he starts off with this all inclusive word, everyone. No one is excluded. All must believe, all must embrace and, and, and articulate the statement that is about to follow. And, and he says that all must believe, everyone uh, who believes. Now that word believes speaks of a continuous action. It's, it, it is everyone who is believing is the idea. Uh, So it's not about just one time in the past where you said, "Okay, I believe Jesus is is the Messiah. I believe Jesus is the Christ. And then you went on and didn't do anything about it. It's Adrian Rogers. He said it very well. He said the assurance of my salvation comes not from the fact that I did trust Christ, but that I am trusting Christ. That's the idea behind it is that I am believing in him. I am trusting in him every day every moment on a con- continual basis and what is it that we must believe well we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah or that Jesus excuse me is the Christ or the Messiah they're, they're the same word one is Jewish in origin one is Greek in origin but they mean the same thing we, we we must believe we've got to trust in the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah he is the Christ the, the hope for and, and promised deliverer tell him I said hi Such a confession is a birthmark that we have been born of God and that we are children of God. So here's the second birthmark. Not only do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but because of that, we have been born of God. Verse 1 again, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, now John will allude to the new birth three times in these verses. It's a theme that began way back in chapter 2, verse 29. And it, he'll complete that theme in ch, in chapter 5, verse 18. And and frankly, there's, there is no doubt whatsoever, really, that where he got the idea from on this whole new birth thing, he, he got it straight from Jesus. Because it's in his gospel, John chapter 3, that the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night is recorded. And what is it that Jesus told Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again And, and in in verse three of that chapter, Jesus said, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we know John got this whole idea of being born again or being born from above or born of God, whatever it it might be, uh, however it's described from Jesus. So so that is a biblical description or a biblical birthmark of a Christian. And as I said, uh, scripture also refers to being born again uh, it uses different phrases. Sometimes it says born from above. That's in, in John chapter three, uh, verse three and seven in first 1 Peter 1.23. Then it uses a big word called regeneration in Titus three five. It's the same thing. Regeneration. What does that mean? I mean, I'm generated again. I'm born again. It's a new creation. That's the idea. And it's not an optional or a secondary experience for a child of God It is absolutely essential And it is what is actually the doorway that leads us into becoming a child of God. Jesus said in John 3, 7, you must be born again. So to be a Christian is to be born again or to be born of God. If you have not been born again, you are not a Christian. And I'm using biblical biblical terms here. Now, however, if you simply trust Jesus as your Messiah... Believing in him to be the very son of God who lived the life that you should have lived, but you didn't. Who died the death that you should have died, but now you don't have to. Who was raised from the dead to give you a salvation that you do not deserve. Then you will indeed experience the supernatural work of God that is the new birth. So um, we see here then this idea of being born of God and believing in Jesus are very much intertwined. They're very much intertwined in the Bible and they cannot be separated. Born, born of God. Think of it like this. It's, it's really, it's the work of God and your response to the work of God. So born of God looks to the work of God in transforming our hearts. I cannot make myself bo- being to be born abo- from above or born again or born of God. I can't do that. That's something God has to do, right? So that's his work. But believing in Jesus is about my human response as we hear and believe the gospel. So they're, they're tied together. There's almost like two sides of the, of the coin that I can't create that work in me, but but when I hear what Jesus has done, when I believe that work is created. So in this, in this new birth, God doesn't just give you a new name. You know, that, I love reading the Old Testament when you read about the new names that different people were given. And, uh, and we know from Revelation, we're gonna have a new name. Uh, one day, that's a whole different study. What uh, maybe we'll do it another time. But but more than that, it's like in the Old Testament, the name was indicative of the character of the person. It's it was it was about that person's personality and characteristics. And so he doesn't just give you a new name; he gives you a new nature. He gives you the very nature of God Himself as you enter into His family. Je- Jesus did not come to die uh, on a bloody cross to make us kinder and nicer people. He didn't die on the cross so that you would be a better version of you. He came to dramatically, personally, radically, and eternally transform us and to make us new people. I didn't need to be made a better Dave when I came to Christ. I needed to be a whole new man. That's what he came to do. And it is by that new birth that he accomplishes that work. And that's why it is about being born again or born of God. It is a new birth. It's a new person. It's a new creation, as some verses say. All right. The next birthmark of being a child of God is that we love the father and we love his family. This is the second half of verse one. Everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. Now, I will say. Uh, it's easy to read that and say, well, loves his child. That must be talking about Jesus, but that's not, that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, the context and everything shows us that he's talking about those who have been born of God. So it means that if you're a child of God, I love you uh, if, if I love the Father. And this, this new birth of regeneration, it brings us into a relationship with God the Father. The, the Father first loved us. And now we love Him for who He is and for what He has done for us in Christ. And and, and doctrinal excellence, a bold faith, evangelistic fervor, fervor and a generous hand, they're all very good things. However, those things are not what matters most to God. All those things are important. But that's not the one thing that God wants more than anything else. The one thing that He desires more than anything else is that we love Him. Think about what when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the first and greatest is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what God wants from us. How, however, we, we not only love the Father, but we also love the family that the Father is building. We'll love our brothers and sisters that, that's, that are those that are born of Him. Now, John makes a very interesting statement in verse 2 that at first, it kind of seems out of order. So let's read it again, Verse chapter 2. Well, we didn't read it before, so let's read it the first time. Ch- uh, chapter 5, verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. Now, I read that, and, and you just think, is, is that out of order? Should, shouldn't He be saying that we know we love God because we love, we love His children? Well, I don't think so. I think... John's point actually is grounded in Jesus' teaching that I mentioned a moment ago about the two great commands. That's in Matthew chapter 22, if you want to look it up, verses 36 through 40. But my love for others is the natural complement and, and companion to my first love for God. When I love God, I will keep His commands. And keeping His commands involves loving others, His children in particular. And, and furthermore, verse 3 informs us that obeying the command of love uh, one another will not be burdensome. It'll be a joy. It'll be a delight because the new birth makes it a natural thing to do. There, there's an, uh, I think, a way we can understand that there's an old saying. Anybody ever heard the saying, any friend of yours is a friend of mine? You ever heard that saying? Well, th- that bears a very interesting connection to the ideas of, of chapter five, verses one and two. The expression conveys relational strength between two people to the point that that actually extends to a third party, even if that person is unknown to the speaker. That that is the friendship between two people is so strong that one friend is willing to accept their friend's friend as their own friend. So that that saying conveys strength of friendship, but it's also a, a tacit endorsement of the friend's judgment. Hey, if they're a friend of yours, I trust your judgment. They must be okay. It's the idea behind it. And so the friend's friend is accepted, not because of who they are even, but they're accepted on the basis of the first friendship. You see this? So now that dynamic also pertains to family relationships. A a child may enjoy the benefits of his or her parents' relationships. The strength of the parents' friendships blesses the child relationally. And so a family friend becomes a surrogate aunt or, or an uncle and takes a special interest in the children of their friends. You know, we see this. We have a very, a very close friend. She's been here to visit before, Connie from Reno, Nevada. And uh, our, our children, we have a strong friendship. We had a strong friendship before our kids were ever born. But our children have benefited and they've grown into a friendship uh, because of that. That's the idea behind it. So indeed, genuine friendship will take into account The friend's children. I'm interested in my friend's children because I care about my friends. Their children are the most important people in my friend's life. Right. So how could I be a genuine friend without sharing interest in their in their kids? In in a similar fashion, to love the father is to love his children as well. So I, I love you as a brother and sister in Christ, as a child of God, not because of who you are, but because my, my friendship, my love with God is so strong that I trust his judgment in adopting you. Does that make sense? That I'm able to, uh, uh, that that's a sign to me. The fact that I love you, you know, uh, in, the, in the body of Christ, you can have two people that are just so very different, opposites. And that, that outside of the body of Christ, they might, they might never get along with each other. But there's something that happens in the body of Christ, and, and it's a sign to us that our love for our Father is genuine because we're loving our, our brother and sister in Christ. So genuine love for God will extend to those whom He loves as His children. Uh, and our, our love for the Father motivates and inspires us to love those He loves and to love them the way that He loves them. Now, that, that whole idea and that whole argument, it carries very practical um, implications for us. First of all, understanding this, it's going to protect us from sentimental and, and, and emotional understandings of love that leave God's character and commands out of the picture. You see, the world thinks about love and they think about butterflies in the stomach and all the emotions and that sort of thing. Understanding what this is about, it protects us from falling into that trap. And we realize, no, 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 love is much more than that. It's much more than just simply emotion. And secondly, because my love for God guides my love for others, I will, uh, I will seek their ultimate good. Uh, not, not that which is just temporary or passing. I, I, I will not seek to other, make others comfortable while neglecting their greatest need, which is salvation in Christ. That, that this, is, this is the reality of what it means to have the love of God in us. I may, I may clothe them, I may uh, educate them, I may feed them, I may do all kinds of good things for them, and they're all wonderful undertakings, but I will strive above all other acts of kindness to help them come to know, love, and trust in Jesus as the Son of God and as their personal Messiah. After all, isn't that what Jesus was talking about when he said in Mark 8, 36? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What good is it if I do everything that I can possibly do for them, but don't introduce them to Jesus? The next, the fourth birthmark of a, of a child of God is that we obey his commands. Look at verses 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. Now, in in these verses, John returns to the theme of obedience to the commands of God. He's talked about this before. Remember, a lot of this is really kind of conclusion, pulling it all together. Though, uh, Though John knew that loving God and obeying God were distinguishable, distinguishable, he also knew that they were inseparable. In other words, loving God is different than obeying God. However, you cannot love God without obeying Him. That's, that's what he's saying here. And he, here, now he adds a new perspective to obedience. It's found at the end of verse 3 when he says, and I mentioned it a moment ago, God's commands are not burdensome. So how, how does that work itself out? Uh, John is saying that the new birth that at the new birth, I receive a new nature. And with this new nature comes new affections, new passions, new treasures, new values. And and because I now love God instead of hating Him, I treasure and value Him above everything and everything else. And because I treasure and value Him above everyone and everything else, I now delight in obeying Him. So now I find His commands not to be a burden, but but a blessing. They're not drudgery. They are delight. Uh, John Piper said it very well. He said, what you desire to do with your whole heart is not burdensome to do. And when I love Jesus with my whole heart, my, my desire is to love and obey him. Jerry Bridges said it, said this. He said, love provides the motive for obeying the commands of the law, but the law provides specific direction for exercising love. So loving God, therefore, is not just external behavior and and outward obedience, but it is a longing. This is the key. It's not just about doing these things. We will do those things, but it's 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 love is about uh, longing to do His will from the heart, not just doing it because that's the right thing or because we have to. It's about longing to do the will of God out of our heart, out of out of gospel gratitude for, for who he is and what he's done for us in, in Christ. It, it's it's not and put it this way. It's not an I have to obedience. It's an I want to obedience. The next one, the fifth one is that we have overcome the world. Verse four, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, the theme of verse 4 is made clear by the repetition of, the, of one word, overcome. It's also in verse 5. We'll see it in a moment. But he says victory, he says overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Both those words, victory and overcome, actually come from the same Greek word. Now, it's translated different ways because it helps us understand it in English. But, but those words it, both come from the Greek word. Are you ready for this? Nike. Anybody heard that one before? That's the Greek word, which, which is also the name of a Greek goddess of victory and speed and strength. And the Romans, actually, the na- their name, you know how Greeks and Romans had the same gods, and, but they gave them different names. Well, the Roman name for this god was Victoria. So it's all about conquering. It's about victory, speed, strength. So the one who has been born of God conquers is, is, is continually victorious over the world. And, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, th- this is the, the fifth authenticating mark of the children of God. And, and when we talk about overcoming the world, what does that mean? Well, John gave us a description of the world in, in chapter two, verse 16, he said for everything in the world, this is the description of the world. This is what he means when he talks about the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the Word. Uh, from, excuse me, from the world. <laughs> a big difference. One, one letter, but a big difference. Here, in, in addition to love, he points to another spiritual weapon that grants us victory over the weapons of the world in our spiritual battles, and that is our faith. By means of the new birth, which is wedded to our faith in Jesus, we believe in Jesus, therefore we are born again. Um, the, the power of the world's desires and aspirations is broken in our lives and we gain victory over them. What it, he's what saying here is it's not about you know, a beatdown, you know, like when you say, I'm victorious, you know, we really took him out. It, it's saying that the world is no longer my passion. God is. The the sinful desires and, and attractions of the world are no longer beautiful to me. God and His will are. Overcomers via the new birth and faith in Christ are, are no longer consumed by what they don't have. That's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And they're no longer consumed by what they do have. That's the pride of life. Instead, that spell has been broken, that, that the shackles have come loose, the blinders have been removed. We, we no longer pine after and love stuff. Rather, with new holy affections from being born again, we pine after and love God. The, the new birth makes all of this possible, and faith gives us the eyes to see it. So when we talk about this and victory, this is really talking about successful, successfully living in God's way rather than succumbing to the whims and the priorities of a rebellious world. John does not mean, though, he's not saying here that we find ourselves in a state of uncompromised freedom from the trappings of the world. He's not saying, hey, you know, you're just going to be free and it's never going to bother you again. You don't have any issues with these. But he's also not saying that our overcoming is purely future referring as though we're only will only really overcome The world when Jesus returns. No, he says the victory that has overcome the world is our faith. Uh, And that is, our faith has already overcome. We are already, another verse says this: we are already more than conquerors. In fact, if genuine faith exists in the world, it exists contrary to the world. It's nothing the world can create, and nothing the world can make happen. In fact, my faith in God, you could say it exists in rebellion against the inclinations of the world. And while faith has already overcome the world in its, through its very existence, it also produces its fruit in our lives over time. The love that, that faith in Jesus brings may not instantly appear like a magic trick. How many of you know that sometimes the Lord has to work on you and you grow in love towards somebody? That ever happen to anybody? Yeah. The faith grows love just as it grows obedience, just as it grows prayer, just as it grows knowledge of God. And in this sense, our overcoming has begun. He's, we've, already, we've already overcome by the fact that we are children of God. We've already won that, the, the victory. But then there's also a sense that while it has begun, it's not yet complete. God's still working on us. While John can say that our faith has overcome the world, our faith-driven lives are in the process of overcoming. The reality of our Christian experience is what's happening is it's catching up to the already victorious reality of our faith. And our faith in Jesus brings about our new birth into families, God's family, and we're growing up into that family likeness. We're like infants learning to walk. Now, what he's saying here, he's telling us that overcoming is assured because we are in God's family. We're, we are in His family, and therefore He is doing this in us. We, we don't belong to the world any longer, even though at times we may walk like infants. Sometimes we just we just crawl. Can anybody get a, get a, give me an amen? But our belonging to the family of God determines our ultimate allegiance. And it also determines our ultimate destiny. We are with Him. We are not with the world. No, we overcome the world. Whatever may happen in this world, whatever sufferings, whatever trials may, may befall us, we know that God has given us eternal life in His Son. We are, have overcome. This, the next one, I believe it's the sixth one. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's the next birthmark. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, notice, it isn't any good work or personal perseverance that overcomes the world, but it's our faith. Faith in what? Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Adrian Rogers said it like this. He said, faith in faith is just positive thinking, but faith in Jesus is salvation. So John brings us full circle and back to Jesus. He started off in verse 1 saying that... that, uh, that we have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. Now in verse 5, he changes it a little bit, and he says now uh, we have to confess him not only as Messiah, but we confess him as the Son of God. So it's very similar, but he changes it a little bit. And there's a reason behind that, I think. We have to understand that that title, Son of God, is a very important title for Jesus in the Bible, and it informs us that he's more than a man, That he's also God. Remember, one of the beliefs that was false teachers were teaching was that you know that flesh was evil, so Jesus could never have been a real man. And and so he wasn't really God, or he wasn't really man, uh, one of the two. And so he's trying to make it clear Jesus was born in the flesh. He really was alive, he really was a man, but he was more than just a man. Um, And so uh, he is the eternal son who always has existed and always will exist in the second person, the triune God. Uh, so the birthmark of a child that is is that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that only Jesus is the Son of God in that unique sense. Then, then we want to move on to verses 6 through 8 where he talks about some witnesses uh, that, that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, uh, this second part of the letter's conclusion, these verses contain uh, some of the most confusing and debated verses in the entire epistle. Uh, Because you read that, and and it's easy to read that and say, what in the world is he talking about? But the key questions revolve around what is meant by water and blood, in verse 6. And also, what it, does it mean that water, blood, and spirit testify in agreement, verses 7 and 8. Now, before attempting to resolve these issues, however, we, we need to note that the main thrust of the passage, which will help us to disentangle some of the difficulties of interpretation, is that the passage is clearly concerned with testimony about Jesus, so it's testimony about Jesus. So John states that Jesus Christ. In at first, he said he came by water and blood. Verse six. Now we don't we, we don't have time, frankly, to explore every possible interpretation that has been put out there, but there are three main options that interpreters and commentators have given to us, and and <clears throat> th- these are the three. One. One idea, one teaching, says that water and blood refer to Jesus' baptism and his crucifixion, respectively. Another, another one, teaches that since that they both refer to Jesus' crucifixion. And the reason they say that is because John alone records the outpouring of water and blood from Jesus' side when this soldier pierced his side with his with a uh, spear. And then the third. Uh, Main uh, option that, that we're given is that they refer to Jesus's birth and his death. So there there are three main clues for helping us to sort through the options. All right, now hang with me. We're gonna we're gonna dig deep a little bit. Okay, first, whatever the water and the blood refer to, in verse six we're told that Jesus is said to have come through them. So that's an important clue. Second. John stresses that Jesus came not by water only, but by water and blood. And by saying that and rephrasing it that way, he's drawing special attention to the significance of coming by blood. And third, the water and the blood testify alongside the Spirit. So as we examine the Spirit's role, that may help us in deciphering the whole situation. So let's work through these clues. First clue. What does it mean that Jesus Christ came by water and blood? Well, let's look at all three of these. What would it mean? If the water and blood refer to Jesus as baptism and crucifixion, then His coming by these things would seem to indicate the entrance into His public ministry, baptism. He came to the, uh, uh, into, into His ministry of baptism and also becoming Savior of the world, crucifixion. If the water and blood refer only to the second option, that is to Jesus's crucifixion alone, then uh, his coming by them would indicate merely his becoming savior of the world. Although with that option, it's just not clear why water would even be mentioned since blood alone could establish that point. Then the third, if the water and blood referred to the third option, which is that it's talking about Jesus's birth and death, then it would establish the coming into the world... And his becoming Savior. So this first clue already makes option two a lot more difficult than options one and three. Because with option two, if it's just about Jesus's death, then you just just open up more questions because you're saying, okay, but then why does he refer to water? Because you could refer to his blood alone and be be, be talking about his crucifixion. All right, second clue. We're going to put these all together in a minute. Why does John draw special attention to the blood? Second part of verse 6. Because he said he didn't come just by water, but he came by water and blood. So if the water and blood refer to Jesus' baptism and and crucifixion, the first option, then this would highlight the importance of Jesus becoming Savior through his his death. Talking about the blood. If the water and blood refer only to the second option, which is Jesus' crucifixion, then perhaps the emphasis on blood would infer the sacrificial nature of his death, you know, bringing out that it was a blood sacrifice. If the water and blood refer to the third option, Jesus' birth and death, then we really come to the same result as option one, that's his becoming Savior is emphasized. Okay, that's the second clue. Here's the third clue. In what sense do the water and blood testify alongside the Spirit? How can we see the Spirit involved in these things? Now, he says the Spirit of truth. He said the Spirit is the truth in verse 6. And it was uh, no doubt what is meant by God's testimony in verse 9. We, did, we didn't uh, read that, but uh, if the Spirit offers God's testimony, then the water and the blood may uh, con- constitute a human testimony or or they may witness to Jesus' humanity. Now, now this really kind of fits all three options, though it probably fits option three best. If the water and blood point to Jesus' birth and death, then they powerfully testify to Jesus' genuine humanity. All right, so those are the three clues. But there is one final point that we need to consider. There is a very, very close association of Jesus' water baptism and the Spirit In all of the Gospels, as as an original disciple of John, because John, the the apostle here, he was was uh, a disciple of John the Baptist. So as an original disciple of John the Baptist, the apostle John would likely have been there at Jesus' baptism. And if he, if he wasn't, if he came and started following John after that, he, in any case, he certainly would have heard John the Baptist's testimony concerning the baptism of Jesus, which he actually recorded in his gospel. He says in verse 32 of John chapter 1, then John gave this testimony, talking about John the Baptist. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So we see a very strong correlation between his baptism and the testimony of the spirit here. The, the, the baptism is also a testimony of the Spirit because the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. In this sense, Jesus' baptism rep- represents a very clear moment of testimony because the Spirit descended on him. And what did the Father say? The voice from heaven said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So this is a, this is, his ba- baptism is a very, very clear moment of testimony. And, and, and that fits the context of 1 John 6-9. N- not only did the Spirit alight upon Jesus at His baptism in a visible form, but the Spirit also continued and remained on Him. He continued to work astonishing miracles all throughout Jesus' ministry. Now, the Apostle John, of course, was present for most of these proofs of Jesus' divine sonship. So the Apostle John had ample opportunity to witness the testimony of the Spirit. So putting all of this together, all the clues, and all this, uh, this close association between the baptism and the Spirit, uh, I, I, I believe that when you put it all together, that option one is stronger than the other two. I believe that the water and blood signify Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death because through these events, Jesus comes, he enters into his ministry through baptism, and he enters into his role as Savior through death. So the water and blood testify that Jesus came to serve and came to die for humanity, while the Spirit testifies that he is God's divine Son. So we have the threefold witness of the water, baptism, the blood, the cross, and the Spirit, and they all agree. Which, by the way, I'm not gonna, I am don't have time to get into this but the Old Testament teaches us that a thing is to be established by how many witnesses? Three. So there, there's good reason why there are three of them there. Now, I want to do a little sidebar, if I can. I, I debated on whether to do this or not because we're going to continue on with the with the next part of the passage. But in verse seven, uh, seven and eight, there's something that happens, something that takes place. And I decided I wanted to, to, to deal with this because there's a lot of people out there that that are sometimes fooled uh, with some of the things that people put out there. Because here's here. Let, let me just put it this way. In in most modern translations of the Bible, uh, 1 John 5, 7 and 8 states this. Now, I don't have this on the slides or anything, so you, you can just relax back there on this part. It says what we just read further are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. However, some older versions, older translations, I should say, most notably the King James Version of 1611, it includes uh, an additional clause in verse 7 that makes a clear reference to the Trinity. And there are some people who have said, hey, why are they, why they pull verses out of the new NIV? Why are they just messing with it? Why are they taking out of the Word of God? Well, I'm going to help you understand this because it's anybody that says that they do not understand how the Bible is translated and they do not understand where the translations of those come from. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk a little bit about this, this particular issue, because then it'll help you understand the next time somebody says, Oh yeah, well, the King James says this and in the NIV, it just completely took it out. There's a reason for that. And it does not invalidate the NIV as being the word of God. In fact, Uh, I mean, listen, do we not want what was truly written as the word of God? Right. So so let's talk about this. So here's the what how it reads in the King James Version. For there are three that bear record to bear record. And here's where it changes in heaven, the father, the word and his holy ghost. And these are three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. then it goes back to what it says in the other translations, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. So, why would modern translations remove a reference to the unity of the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, with this Word being the Son? And in fact, I even, I've even heard some people say uh, that uh, they, they, there's some conspiracy thing. They say, well, uh, when they were translating it, there was a Unitarian, somebody who didn't believe in the Trinity, on the translating board, and they were pressuring everybody, so they just took it out. Totally false. Totally false. Uh, I mean, w- why would they do this? Were they motivated by some anti-Trinitarian heresy or, or was it ju- they just guilty of editorial incompetence? Were they ungodly translators or did they just make an innocent mistake that nobody has bothered to fix for century? Well, the truth is, these additional words are called, I'm going to give you a, uh, the, what scholars call it, they call it the, uh, if I remember how to say it right, the comma johannium. That's right, comma johannium. That's Latin for the johannin comma, johannin meaning having to do with John. And, and, and the, the comma johannium is left out of modern translations because after the King James Version was translated, Christians discovered clear and convincing evidence that those words had been added to John's original letter. They, they were not penned. By John, the Apostle John himself. A number of facts lead us to this conclusion. First of all, out of hundreds, hundreds of Greek manuscripts available to us for discovering the original text of 1 John, only eight manuscripts contain the Kama Yohannian. Only eight out of hundreds. Of these two, of these eight, two are from the 16th century. So we're talking, you know, 15, 1600 years later. And one is from the 18th century. And in all of the remaining texts, the Kama Johannayim was added later to manuscripts that originally didn't contain them. In short, the earliest hand-copied manuscript in which the verse appears as the originally written text by the copyist comes from the time of the Reformation. That's the earliest that we that this shows up. Now, I, I want to just say this. We need to understand that King James Version was a great translation using what they had. But since 1611, we have found many other older manuscripts than what they had. Like anybody who heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? So, so what they do is they, they want to try to reference things and, and compare things to the oldest. That is the closest to the original source, right? Anybody ever play the, the uh, telephone game, the gossip game, where you get a big circle of people and you whisper something to somebody. And by the time it gets around, it's completely different. That's the idea behind it. We want to get to the to the source that is closest to the original, because that is, has the greatest likelihood of being what was actually written. OK, are, are we on the same page here? Uh, and so by the way, that is the reason why, if you read in NIV, that there's something that's not included. And by the way, most of them, it will include it in the margin. They It's still there. You can read it if you want to. Uh, but the reason it doesn't appear there is because they have found, since the days of the King James, older manuscripts that didn't include those words. And so sometimes, uh, it, well, anyway, let's, uh, let me keep going and we'll, we'll get to that idea in a minute. Uh, Second, besides lacking lacking, uh, reliable Greek manuscript support, the Kama Iohannium also lacks historical support. It appears in none of the ancient transcripts of the Greek Bible or in the earliest Latin translations. It actually first appears in, in Latin manuscripts in later editions of the Roman Catholic Church's Vulgate, which is just that's what they call it, but it's a Latin translation of the Bible, around the 6th century, because the, the priests started doing everything in Latin, right? And, and, and anyway, that's a whole different story behind that. Furthermore, the first person in history that we can find historically to clearly show knowledge of this passage was a Spanish heritage from, heretic from the 4th century. And so, some Latin-speaking church fathers began referring to the phrase in the 5th century but none of the Greek fathers, none of the early church fathers that actually used the Greek seem to have been even aware of its existence. So, with such skimpy evidence for authentic- its authenticity, how did these words get into the Roman Catholic Vulgate uh, by the Middle Ages? And, and ultimately then into the King James Version after the Reformation? Because the King James used Greek, a Greek version that had been translated from the Latin version. So you see, it gets really convoluted. This is the problem when, that's why you wanna go back as, as, as early as you can. Well, New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger explains that the comma that the Johannium arose when the original passage was understood to symbolize the Trinity. So they read these three and somebody thought, hey, this that sounds like the Trinity there. And so what probably happened was they made a note in the margin uh, of something saying, you know, referring to the to the to the Trinity in this way, and somehow over time it eventually found its way into the text. Then around the time of the Reformation, you know, with Martin Luther and the and the theses being, uh, you know, uh, nailed to the door of the church, around that time the Roman Catholic scholar whose name is Erasmus, it, he was uh, creating a Greek New Testament in fifteen sixteen. And he originally left out the Comma Yohanniam uh, when he published his first edition. Why? Why did he exclude this clause? Well, it's because he could not find those words in any of the Greek manuscripts available to him when he began to typeset and print the Greek Bible. However, because the Roman Catholic Church's official trans- translation, the Vulgate, because it, it, it contained those additional words, the church leaders pressured Erasmus to add the Kama Yohannium, and he did so with very strong reservations in his 1521 edition. And then once the words were added, later editions of the Greek New Testament, based on Erasmus's work, where they were reluctant to remove the words because, right? I mean, I can understand this, they were afraid it might be the Word of God. They don't know. So they're not going to leave it out. So thus, the translators of the King James Version of 1611 included the Comma johannium in their translation. Modern translations have actually corrected the error of the Roman Catholic Church's Latin Vulgate and the politically motivated Greek New Testament of Erasmus. They have actually restored the shorter reading of 1 John 5, 7, and 8 that was originally penned by the Apostle John. Now, I, I, I just that's just for what it's worth. That's a little sidebar. Uh, and that's why that phrase isn't there. And when you when you see somebody, because you'll see it from time to time on Facebook, somebody will say, NIV is, you know, the devil's version, this sort of thing. And they'll say, they left this out, and they left this out, and they left this out. You know, if you start to do the research, you realize that, that there, was, there was nothing, uh, any changes, anything that was taken out is because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. And, and you'll also discover that there's nothing that's in the, that's in the King James Version that's, that's not in the NIV that changes one bit of the theology of the Bible. So, there you go. All right, let's go on to verse 9. I've got to really hurry. I knew I bit off too much here. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which He has given about His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his te- this testimony Whoever does not believe God has, has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. So John continues with this parade of witnesses calling to the stand at this point, the strongest witness of all. And that's God, the father. And he applies, uh, employs what what he has done in other places as well. What we call a lesser to greater argument. And here it is in the everyday affairs of life. We accept the testimony of men. You go to court, you accept the testimony of men and women. And his point is, if that is so, how much more should we believe God himself? Especially when he has just supplied his own threefold witness of the spirit, water and blood. The the testimony of God is indeed greater. It's superior in source and status and significance than the testimony of any human person. Um, the, the, The testimony of God is more reliable and trustworthy because it comes from a God who cannot lie. If anybody says, oh, you think God is all powerful, you say God can't do anything. No, that's not, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that God can't do anything. For one, God can't lie. So there are things that God has constrained himself in, in his own character. Um, and so the, 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 he's a God who cannot lie. Therefore, his testimony is trustworthy. The And so it, The the abiding testimony of Jesus' baptism, His crucifixion, and that of the Holy Spirit is God's historical witness about His Son, that Jesus is His Son. And never did God give such a witness concerning anyone else in all of history. The Father's witness concerning His Son is singular, it is unique, and therefore it demands a response from each and every one of us. Neutrality and indecision... Is not an option. In fact, to not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, according to what John says, is to not believe God and to make him a liar because they've not believed the testimony he he has given about his son. John says that believing in Jesus as the Son of God is equivalent to accepting the Father's testimony about his son. To reject Jesus as God's Son is equivalent to charging God with perjury. That's what he's saying. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. This is the ultimate test as to who the true believer is, the one who takes God's own word for who Jesus is. Now, uh, let, me, let me see what I need to go here. So I'm going to run out of time. Uh, well, let, let me just try to touch on a couple things here. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony God has given us. Uh, God has given us eternal life. Actually, I'm doing better than I thought. I only have another couple pages here. Um, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this, is, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is um, really such a powerful summary of the gospel. If you have Jesus, you have life. If you don't, you don't. It, it, it's the summary of the whole matter. Eternal life is found in Jesus. The the one who believes the truth about the Son finds the key to eternal life, and, and now bound up in this true belief about Jesus is, are all of the various elements of truth that, that John has has been expounding throughout the whole letter about Jesus. That Jesus's blood purifies from all sin, verse chapter one, verse seven. That He is our advocate with the Father, chapter two, verse one. That He is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins, chapter two, verse two and four, ten that he is the Christ, chapter two twenty-two. that he destroys the devil's work, chapter 3, verse 8, that he laid down his life for us, chapter 3, verse 16, that he has come in the flesh, chapter 4, verse 2, and that he is the Son of God, chapter 4, verse 15, and now chapter 5, verse 5. These things tell us who the Son is and that eternal life is found in him. To have the Son or not to have the Son is the ultimate question. For whoever has, present tense, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus does not say that those who have the Son simply have access to eternal life. Doesn't say that they just have hope of eternal life. He, He says they have, as a present reality, eternal life. And 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 I don't have this in my notes, but to understand eternal life is more than just about never-ending duration. It's about a it's about a quality of life. It's a it's a it's a godlike life. It's a it's a divine infused life. So it's more than just I'm going to live forever because that would be horrible if I was going to live forever in the state I'm in now. I would just be that would be so sad. You know what I'm saying? But this eternal life has a different quality to it, too. It's not just about that it goes on forever. Thank the Lord for that. But having the Son is the essential point. Anyone who rejects Jesus as the Son of God cannot have, cannot have the life that God offers. Now, in today's world, that is politically incorrect. Today's world, that's, that's actually one of the things that the world hates, especially in the Western world, hates about Christianity, is that it's claim of exclusivity. What makes you so special? Why do you think yours is true? What about the Muslims? What about the Buddhists? What about this? What about that? What about all these beliefs? And there's some, even the, pur- the purport to be Christians and say, oh, well, we just all serve the same God. That's a bunch of, of uh, the Greek, uh, the, the original Greek would be hogwash. <laughs> no, 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 because the, the gods described in all of those religions are very very different and you can't you you know if you have one guy that one god that that's willing to lie and another one cannot lie they cannot be the same so as politically incorrect as it may be to say such a thing that is the direct application of first john 5:12 it is simply is not possible to reject the son to reject jesus and to have life in God no matter how devout your one's worship may be. I don't care how sincere you are in whatever other religion you may face. I don't care how sincere you are as a Muslim or how sincere you are as a Buddhist or how sincere you are in any other religion. That, that is not, that's not the point because the, the direct application of 1 John 5.12 says it's all about Jesus who do you? John constantly comes back to this Christological question: Who is Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? And if you define that wrong, everything else is wrong. Everything else gets off. This the exclusive exclusivism of the Son is absolutely central to authentic Christianity. Now that is not to say that we should that that, that it's it's about uh, uh, proclaiming that in a, in a proud and arrogant manner. You know, it's not to say, oh, we got the true God, you bunch of morons. No, it's about saying Jesus is the only way. Please let me tell you about it. Please let me tell you about it, because the way you're going leads to destruction. The way you're going is not going to get where you get you where you think you're going. You know, as a pastor doing doing funeral funerals, um, I don't you know, it's a it's in a weird sort of way i don't want you to think i'm you know like sadistic or something but it's a joy doing a funeral for somebody who loves god uh, it's more of a celebration but let me tell you it is a laborious chore to try to preach a, a funeral for somebody whom you know as far as you know never made a profession in christ Christ, never chose to to serve him because everybody wants to say, oh, well, they're in heaven. Well, when I'm preaching, I can't say that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, I've been in a a funeral service one time as this young kid. I think he was just maybe 18, 19, maybe early twenties that he died of a drug overdose. He had been running from God, hadn't been in church, hadn't no sign whatsoever and, and yet the preacher got up and said, talked about how he's in heaven today. I can't do that. Because if there's no evidence that he accepted the son, there's no evidence that he has eternal life in him. It, Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me so i'm not arrogant in proclaiming that i'm just saying what jesus said and that is part of the motivation for us to tell other people you see it's it's not it's not a reason for us to sit back and feel proud and say oh well i got it figured out thank the lord for that no it's a reminder to us that that is why we must tell people about jesus and who he is and help them understand this We have to learn again that Jesus is a divisive figure. We know that. And we're seeing that more and more in our world today. We cannot accept him without being rejected by others. I'm here to tell you, if you want to be happy and and accepted by the world, if that's more important to you, then you're not going to be able to live for Jesus. Because if you take him seriously, there are many, many people in the world that will reject you because they're being controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, the the enemy, and he hates Jesus. He hates them too. So knowing this, knowing that Jesus is the only way, we should be less concerned about political correctness and more concerned with our mission. That's the point of it. So that yet more people wouldn't be able to enjoy life through the sun. That's what it's about. And that's what John is calling us to. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, I'm so grateful, Lord, for your word. And Lord, I know there was a lot of technical stuff, a lot of details tonight, but Lord, I pray that that one thing would resonate within our hearts, that we would remember Jesus is the only way. And Lord God, that we would not just sit back and feel content in that, but God, that we would look around and realize that there is a world that does not know that. They don't understand that. They're running headlong into destruction. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to speak that truth in a spirit of love, that Lord God, that that you would open doors, you would soften hearts, that you would give us conversations, give us moments where we can talk with people about who Jesus is and what you've done in our lives. And God, that you would use our lives and our words as, as, as sort of like salt to create a thirst. And I pray, God, that you would draw people to Jesus, your one and only Son of God, the the one who is the Savior of the world, the one who came into this world, who lived the life that we should have lived but didn't, the one who died the death we should have died, but now we don't have to, and the one who gives us salvation that we do not and cannot ever deserve. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.